This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. I'm chasing after an idea that in one big store in New York City, in this incredible location, we will figure out how to make the best ice cream in the United States. That's Nicholas Morgenstern. And Nick does, in my opinion, truly make the best ice cream I have ever tasted. But for him, he's just at the beginning of a journey, mastering the flavor and texture and experience of eating ice cream. He makes ice cream at two shops, one in Greenwich Village, the other in the East Village, both in Manhattan. And these shops are exactly what an ice cream shop should be. Bright, white, clean, pristine. There's this large retro menu board, although not overdoing the retro stuff. All the employees wear white. Nick came to the interview in white, head to toe. I'm pretty sure he came from scooping ice cream. And the shops are popular. There are often long lines. I don't want to talk about the line. The number one problem that people have with Morgan Stearns is the line and that we don't allow you to taste more than two flavors. And we don't allow you to taste more than two flavors because that makes the line longer. <laughs> so this is like a problem and it's Although, challenging. If the number one complaint is too many people want your ice cream. Yeah. That attitude, the attitude that just always wants to make it better, even though he's already making shockingly great ice cream in this beautiful location. His ice cream parlors, not to be dramatic, it's like walking into a work of art. You just feel like in the crowd, everybody's just having a really great day. But Nick doesn't just see the smiles. He sees all the little problems that he can fix. And that is what sets Nick apart and guides him in his steady march towards something he calls the platonic ideal of ice cream in America in the 21st century. I'm Adam Davidson, and this is The Passion Economy, a show where we talk to folks who have figured out how to thrive in a challenging economy. We do this in three parts. First, the background. What events have shaped this person and their passions? Part two is the business they run today. And then in part three, we take lessons from their lives that we can apply in our own. Today, I talk with someone who, more than anyone I've ever met, is so committed to his craft that... I've repeatedly turned down opportunities that would have made me or the business more money in 
exchange for being able to hone and sharpen a vision around this larger ideal. And I actually think that in the long run, turning down all that money, focusing on his product and his craft, is going to be a money-making move. But first, let's do the background. And for a story about perfect ice cream, this starts in a pretty tough place. I grew up in San Francisco in the Bay Area. I was born in Iowa, Iowa City, but my folks divorced. My mother was like the sole guardian, so we stayed with her most of the time. And my father, I think, had a hard time with the split and just kind of got involved in alternative lifestyle that didn't make him available to us. He just wasn't really around. And um, my mom really struggled and she was pretty angry about the whole situation and just angry in general. My mom wasn't very happy. And um, by the time I was 14, I was a freshman in high school. My mother asked me to go join a cult with her and I did not think that that was a good idea. And I went to go live with my dad and we kind of had like a roommate kind of dynamic. My mom kidnapped my brother and left and joined a cult, and we didn't hear from them again for a very long time, for about 10 years. They were like missing, could not be found. I'm giving you an abbreviated version, but those were the big events of my childhood, yeah. You know, I always find in these episodes that learning the early life story often tells us a lot about the career and the business of whoever I'm talking to. But with Nick, it is so extremely clear. Here's somebody who has denied so much of the normal American childhood experience. And now he's devoting his life to recreating a classic childhood experience. Going to an ice cream shop, ordering a perfect ice cream. And it's clear his grandfather had a lot to do with that. I was pretty close with my dad's dad when I was young, my grandfather, who lived in southern Ohio, and we would stay with him in the summer times when I was a child. And Grandpa Morgenstern was an ice cream lover, and he had worked in a dairy. And, you know, when we were kids, the food left some things to be desired, but there was always ice cream at the end of the meal every single day. And butter pecan was Grandpa Morgenstern's ice cream flavor, and that was always in the freezer, and he was eating that every day. He just was like a force of productivity. He put himself through school on the GI Bill. He was in World War II. He became an engineer. He tended to the farm his whole life, almost until the day he died, and was like a civil engineer built and designed the roads in and around the town where they lived in Marriott, Ohio. He just like got things done. And so I feel that in me, there's just sort of like a force to push forward and get things done in one foot in front of the other. So I think there's something there with that, that I always wanted to get up and do something, be productive. He has been working steadily at mastering food and specifically desserts, since he was a teenager. First, he went to culinary school. Then for quite a while, he was a pastry chef for U.S. military officers at a base in Germany. He worked at a bunch of restaurants in the Bay Area around San Francisco. Then he worked in Hawaii. He eventually came to New York and worked in some elite places like Danielle. And then he created his own businesses, his own restaurants. And maybe because of his childhood, maybe because of his grandpa, Nick became kind of obsessed with ice cream the history of ice cream. Historically, ice harvesting 
was something that happened for royalty in different parts of the world. And cutting ice out of a lake and cutting ice out of a mountain. The Americanness of ice cream. In Prohibition, the ice cream parlor replaced the speakeasy or bar as a place to socialize here also. So there's been some events that have embedded it in our culture. It wasn't intentional, but here we are today. And it was like a right. As an American, you ate ice cream. And this clear conviction that he could make ice cream better. We should be able to make ice cream that would exceed your expectation. And it was just like a really simple idea that when I would go into an ice cream shop and get the pistachio ice cream, pistachio is one of these sort of ice creams that you can gauge and people have like a strong connection to pistachio. And always I would get it and be like, it's just like you see it on the menu and you conjure an idea of what a pistachio could be and then you eat the thing and it's like, okay. And so that one in that way always was like kind of burning for me. Like, can we figure out how to make that thing exceed the expectation? And so just starting with that as like the mission statement and then reverse engineering everything else around it to make that happen and to try not to kill the vibe with everything being too clinical or sterile. There's a tendency for that in the business that I work in. And when we started to hone in on the way that we make ice cream, now, which is doesn't have eggs in it, is relatively low sugar content relative to competitive product, and then also is a relatively low air or what they call overrun in the product. When we started to hone in on that formula, which is kind of tricky, chemistry of that is a little tricky. So when we started to like hone in on that, I was like, oh, wow, this is crazy. You can make this thing taste like what you expect it to taste like when you read the menu and And that is such a classic way to find out. You have a theory about ice cream. I didn't even have a theory. I did it because I wanted to. You just wanted to. And it didn't cost me anything. So in that time, I owned and operated the restaurant with a business partner. And I pulled him to the side and I said, that little room in the front that's got a dirt floor where the meters are, let me have that. I'll rent that separately and I'll put my little ice cream production in there and then I'll build this little cart and I'll stick it in front of the restaurant and like, what's the worst that can happen? I don't sell enough ice cream, it doesn't matter. It was very low risk in that way. And then I bought the machine that I still have today. So that was expensive. That was about $9,000 when I bought it, which was a lot of money for me. I didn't have money like that. And then bought some fridges and a freezer. I bought one freezer from a place in the Bronx that I still do business with. And then built this little cart, you know, with buddies that welded stuff for me. And like, we made something that looked kind of wacky. That was like my style. And then it worked. And it really was like, I wasn't testing it. It showed me that this is what I should be doing. I wasn't like, let me try this and see if it works. I was like, let me do this because I love this. And we had lines and lines of people. We would serve hundreds of people in this, not a highly trafficked location in Brooklyn. And at the end of the first summer running it, the New York Times raided all the ice creams in New York and they called ours the holy grail of ice cream. And at that moment, I was like, I can probably turn this into a business that's viable. And he did. Morgan Stern's finest ice cream. After the break. The first time I tried Nick's ice cream, I was with my kid and I was just blown away. 
It was a time where I was thinking a lot about the passion economy. And I thought, whoever made this, I knew nothing about Nick, nothing about the place, but I thought, whoever made this has passion for ice cream. So I contacted Nick and found out, man, oh, man, does he have passion. His brain is always buzzing about flavors and ways of making ice cream. I learned reading about this that there's a bit of a renaissance in new startup ice cream companies. And the typical story is there's some founder who comes up with some ice cream concept and then outsources a lot of the recipe making and ice cream manufacturing to other companies and then sells the idea of the ice cream to some big company. But that is not Nick. Nick is deeply involved in every menial task, and every big idea. Because the thing about Nick is, he consistently chooses passion over economic efficiency. And if there's anything you should take away from this episode, that is it. Because that's what makes Nick happy, and in the long run, that's what's going to make his business stand out in a country filled with ice cream manufacturers, ice cream shops. I'm very lucky that it allows me to be challenged in all these ways that I love. I work on stuff and I fix stuff all the time and I'm constantly reorganizing and designing and making it more efficient. And then we make products all the time and it's very challenging, but I love it. I truly love it. So there's nothing else I would rather be doing. Okay. So I want to walk through some of the things that were sort of formative. So this egg thing, I had no idea that there's egg in almost all the ice cream I've ever tasted. So first of all, explain why is there egg? Historically in Europe where ice cream making really came of age, cream would have been reserved for making cheese. Cream would have been much more prized and you would be looking for a way to preserve it and to create an ice cream base that would have viscosity, a thickness, richness, uh, both in like flavor and texture, but also the ability to trap air, which is what makes ice cream have that delicious creamy texture. The egg is a terrific substitute and you have eggs available to you fresh every day if you have a chicken and they're cheap. And so egg yolk has just been embedded in ice cream making. And most of the ice cream that I ever was trained to make by pastry chefs had egg in it. For me, I got rid of the eggs because I think that they impede the release of the flavor on your palate. And therefore, they don't serve my mission statement, which is to exceed your expectation when you order the ice cream. So that was an easy one. One of the biggest things you do, which really is, I think, a very expensive choice, is you don't just have one base ice cream that you add flavor to. So explain what a base ice cream would be that some other, you know, some competitor might use. Well, you could think of a base like vanilla without vanilla in it. Let's just say it's just plain. And so you could make 50 gallons of that base, a big bunch of it. Or if you're Ben and Jerry's or... Thousands of gallons. And then you can split it up into 10 gallons over here and 10 gallons over there and so on and so forth. And then you can add in, then the vanilla flavor can get added in to one 10-gallon portion and then the chocolate can get melted and emulsified into another one and so on and so forth. Therein lies one of the major issues in why that ice cream that you order over the counter doesn't meet your expectation when you taste it. 
What we're doing is we're writing every recipe for every flavor. It's a lot of work. You mean the base ice cream? So that's the cream plus sugar. Your salt content needs to get adjusted for certain things. The sugar content needs to get adjusted. I'm usually orienting these flavors to the feedback that I get from the customer of like how they want this to feel when they eat it. I have tend to have a sort of a lighter touch on the palate for myself. A little less salt, a little less sugar in general. I like things that are a little bit more subtle. The customer that comes to Morgan Stearns is like, give it to me. They really want it to be indulgent. So you make smaller batches of each ice cream because you're not making one giant batch of base and then inserting. So that means you have to buy more customized machines. It increases the labor cost. Mm-hmm. Like walk me through the business implications okay. of... Um, yeah, your overall labor scheduling and also really specifically your orientation around your inventory is like a whole th- job that you have to do. We have 88 flavors and we have to manage all those things every day. And so the labor cost is much higher, the amount of equipment, and then also the production schedule means that this is happening all the time. You're making product all the time, which means that you have to be managing or monitoring the making of the product all the time. This is not automated in any way. This is cooking. They are cooking every day in the kitchen and I'm cooking with them to make sure that that five-gallon recipe gets made correctly, and we're selling hundreds of gallons a day. So it's a lot to get all those details to happen. Another thing Nick does that doesn't necessarily streamline the process, quite the opposite, it makes his products harder to scale, but is still a very good business move for a passion economy business. He makes these, I don't know what to call them, chefy flavors. I don't call them chefy flavors, but we have things that are unusual or unexpected, but we prominently display parlor favorites, which are the ones that we've created that we have a very hard time taking off the menu, like salt and pepper, pine nut, green tea, pistachio, chocolate oat. These are things that were not created by anyone but us, but that have almost become like classics in our lexicon of what we serve to our customer. Our customer will have a big problem if we take those off the menu. And then we prominently try to display and serve American classics like cookies and cream, pita buttercup, butter pecan, and things that I think fall into that sort of era or category where you're like looking for an American classic. Yeah. And I come to your place often enough that I'm presented with the choice. And I find myself always struggling. Like, do I want just a classic right. flavor or do I want, do I want to try, try something, something different? Yeah. yeah. And we kind of like balance that. We'll continue to hone the selection over the next year until we'll come up with a list that will never change, hopefully. Oh, that is the plan. That's what I want to do. I want to come up with 88 flavors that just live there. And if you do it right, people come back and they might only come back twice a year. They don't live here or whatever it is, but they go, oh man, the durian banana is this thing and I can only get it there. And when they come back, we have to have it. It's got to be there. That's how you create the legacy of a customer experience in and around the brand of Morgan Stearns. When we scheduled this interview, I insisted that Nick bring some Morgan Stearns ice cream purely for research purposes. I want to be an accurate journalist, so I need to taste the ice cream while I talk about it. So he brought this amazing pint of burnt honey vanilla, even better, this world-changing salted chocolate ice cream, and he brought some of that durian banana flavor. And if you don't know about durian, it's a fruit from Southeast Asia that has a mixed reputation. 
It is very, very pungent and uh, has an aroma that a lot of people find offensive, but not unlike maybe a very ripe specific type of cheese might have the similar kind of aroma. It has complex compounds that are similar to onions. And so it has this flavor that's, it's notorious. It is a notorious thing. And in public transportation and in elevators in Asia, it's not, you're not allowed to bring them. Really? Uh, Yeah, because they offend people and it's, you know. All right, let me try this. The king of fruits. I smell it. It is yeah, it's strong, strong smell. Wow. I say this with love. Like, part of me is like, wait, that's disgusting. And then, no, it's oh, delicious. Yeah. It's a much more like, mm. I mean, the, the chocolate and the vanilla feel like comforting and like, this feels like challenging in a. But so you want to eat more. I want to eat more. Oh, of I it definitely right want to eat more. Yeah. And I'm not an odd fan of durian. There's a lot of people who like really are obsessed, but. It has such an interesting flavor. Yeah. This Ooh. batch is very, very fruity. There's a very strong, mm. bright acidity, yeah. almost like a strawberry or raspberry mm-hmm. in there. And that's just, we buy the fruits and we get the fruits that we get. So it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take some more. <laughs> when we opened Morgan Stearns in 2014, I put it on the menu because I always thought it was weird that the Chinatown Ice Cream Factory here in New York, it's a beloved institution that's been there for 25 years now. And they were like known to have it, but then they would never have it. And so you would go there and ask them and they would be like, no, they don't, they have, you know, they probably have, I don't know, less than 20 flavors there. And they have interesting things like pandan, which is a palm leaf that comes from Southeast Asia. That's like specific flavor. And they have interesting flavors there, but the durian would just like not be around. And I thought it'd be interesting if we served it. So we put it on the menu when we opened over Memorial Day weekend of 2014. And so we put it on the menu on the Friday and we had a line around the door from the day we opened and... I was working the register the whole weekend and I made all the ice cream at the time. So I had produced what I thought would be the appropriate inventories of the 25 or 30 or so flavors that I was serving there. And um, by Sunday, the day before Memorial Day, the staff came and said, we're out of the durian. We don't have durian. So it's not possible. You know, I made five gallons and I ran around the store looking for it. Sure enough, we don't have it. So then I thought, well, that's a pain in the butt. And I can't get the durian because the next day is a holiday and whatever the case is. And I was like, okay, so we opened the next day. A lot of customers came in that were looking for that. We'd been open four days, mind you. There was no lore of Morgan's turns at this point. We had been open for four days and people were looking for it. And I couldn't believe how many people had come from far because their friend said you should, you got to try this, or they word tried- travels fast in that community in New York, the Foodie. Asian community oh, the that's Asian com- looking for okay. durian. Is if you're a durian lover, you're gonna find it, sniff it out, so to speak, and then they came all the way over and they didn't have it. So we've never run out of it since then because you we, make enough. We have to, it's an inventory product that we can't run out of. And in this story of an ice cream that is controversial, are some really important takeaways. I think of Nick's business as existing on this base, this very trusted base. You walk into the store, it feels like an old ice cream shop. The white little paper caps and the white outfits that the ice cream scoopers wear, the signage and knowing that there's lots of chocolates and vanillas and strawberries and Rocky Road, all all your favorite ice creams, makes you feel very comfortable, confident that you're going to get a good ice cream experience. But then parallel to that is this other thing going on, this kind of wild experimental creativity, like having durian banana, having an ice cream called ash, which tries to mimic 
eating ice cream made out of burnt ash. He has a bunch of flavors that probably most people are not necessarily going to love, but some audience will find just addictive, something they can't get anywhere else. And everyone, I think, certainly me when I go there, feels that those experimental flavors makes you think more highly of the standard flavors. You know there's a lot of thought and passion going into them. Now, I would guess that maybe an efficiency expert could walk in and say, boy, you really shouldn't make these five flavors because they don't do as well as these other flavors and they're taking up space or whatever. But I think Nick's take is actually more sophisticated, even from a pure profit motive. He makes a lot of choices that make the business more expensive. The not using eggs. He also doesn't use preservatives. The way he makes a new base for every flavor of ice cream. Those decisions are really expensive in every way. They cost money, they cost time, they just make it a hassle to run an ice cream business. But Nick has made this calculation that making a truly superior product will pay off in the end. So what can we learn from Nick's story? That's after the break. So this is probably a good time to pick Nick's business apart. What are the things Nick is doing that set him up for success in this new economy? What can we steal and copy for our own lives and businesses? So first of all, there's passion. Nick is obviously dedicated to his mission, to making the platonic ideal of ice cream. And I think it's pretty obvious that if he had a choice to make, whether to make a killing in money or to make great ice cream, he would choose to make great ice cream. In fact, We know that's true because he could have sold out a while ago. He could have expanded a lot, but he hasn't. New York has a bunch of like co-packing facilities, co-manufacturing facilities where you can come up with a recipe for ice cream, for a chocolate bar, for a makeup, for, you know, New Jersey is filled with these. Yeah, Pennsylvania too, yeah. Yeah, and you just give that recipe to some factory and they make it for you and deliver it to you. They can even drop ship it where you can have some website and they ship it directly to your customers. You don't ever have to even be in the same room with your product. That sounds terrible to me. (laughs) But it's very efficient. But you could even do what you're doing, which is hand make everything, but not hand make everything in Greenwich Village where the real estate is unimaginably expensive. It's more expensive, but you know that I'm enough of a nut about understanding production and efficiency and all that stuff that I could go build a warehouse in some other borough somewhere or somewhere in New Jersey or something myself and figure out and buy the equipment and produce all this. Or I could find someone and get them to do that. First and foremost, it's really not interesting to me. It's not going to hold my interest and my energy. And second of all, you give up so much in the spoon, in the cone, in the cup by doing that. When you say you could go raise venture capital money and then be on that path, that whole idea and whatever is potentially attached to that for personal gain, whatever that might be, that idea of doing that does not make me feel good as a person. So I have to be true to that. That does not make me feel good in this moment in time. And if I can just say, sure, I don't think that's just an emotional decision. It is, but it's also a business decision. Like you would not be as successful if you did that. Yeah, we are interested in continuing to build 
you know, brand equity and trust in the brand by doing it really, really well every day and trying to figure out how to do it really, really well every day. So that's where I am right now. There are venture capital funds and firms who contact me on a regular basis and tell me that I should do that. Unfortunately, the approach typically of those people does not take into consideration that the success of Morgan Stearns and how and why we are the way that we are is because of all these sort of granular little things. And like, it's not built out of an algorithm or a business model or a business plan. It is feeling. I have a lot of feelings about this stuff. And then I'm willing to sacrifice my lifestyle to make those things reality. And that reality has created a brand that people have a feeling about. And that's what I'm doing. It's not even really calculated. There's many people in my life who look at it and they're like, you're crazy. You're crazy to be doing this this way. And I will do the delivery of our ice cream tomorrow morning at six in the morning. I drive the van and I do it with my guys. And then I go back to the shop and drop off all the empties and place all the orders and process the payrolls. And like, that's, this is what I am doing. That's what I'm doing. And any talk or conversation about something else is taking me away from that. And those functions that I'm performing in my business right now are what's getting us closer to that platonic ideal. So I will give you an anecdote that's been banging around in my head for the last 10 months or so. And it's about a guy here in New York City who's a chef who worked at very great restaurants and he's in his late 50s, early 60s. His name is Frankie DiCarlo. He has a restaurant in Nolita called Peasant. And he's been doing business there for over 20 years and very sort of quietly but well-known within the business. Frankie works the line like every single night. I don't know him. I've met him a couple times. I know people who know him and they love him. He's the real thing. He runs his business. Very successful restaurant. And I started thinking about it a few And that's not typical that a chef like that would run the line. Crazy. Like Tom Colicchio or someone sitting there grilling steaks. No. And he specifically works the oven. He has a beautiful kitchen and a beautiful wood-fired oven. And it's not a big, crazy, spanking 10,000-square-foot kitchen like you have at Danielle or something like that. It's just a regular-sized kitchen in a regular-sized restaurant. And he can see the dining room and people can see him and he's in there and I ate there four months ago and there he was working the oven and sweating and had towel tied around his head and I was like he's fucking doing it he's this is this is not myth and I've been there a number of times and then I started to think to myself I said you know that restaurant's really successful and they have a little pizza restaurant underneath with a bar and that place is always late night kind of popping off and the dining room is like busy all the time I know the numbers and I said so that place probably does about you know three million a year in sales and his rent's pretty reasonable and this and that I don't know know how much he owns, but I bet he owns more than half. Otherwise he wouldn't be doing this. So let's say he owns half of the thing. And let's say that the thing throws off $425,000 a year because he probably knows what he's doing. He figured it out. And so he's making 200 and some thousand dollars a year to be a line cook. This is the smartest guy that I could see out there because you go into cooking because you love to cook. The problem is, is you can't make a living cooking. And Frankie figured out how to make a living doing the thing that he loves to do. And that, to me, is a life well lived. 
And he could have had 10 restaurants because he's successful and people know him. And I'm sure there's lots of people who want to give him money to do this, that, and the other thing. And that's what I'm thinking about in my life now is as I might move forward to grow and expand the brand, what do I have to do to get to continue to make Grandpa Morgan Stern's butter pecan ice cream? Because that's what I really, really love to do is do that. Dealing with a co-packer and having ice cream all over the place or the venture capital fund that's going to hire the guy who's going to find the co-packer, one way or the other, that involves work and communications and things that I'm going to have to do that I'm not going to love to do. So in service of what? Of having more money? What other reason is there to do that? Nick has done a really hard thing here, a thing a lot of us never figure out. So we end up spending our lives chasing the wrong thing. Nick has redefined success for himself. It's not about making a ton of money. It's about making enough money doing what he loves. Look, how long is it going to be before Unilever or Nestle is like knocking on my door saying, we want to like scoop this up because you're doing that? So to speak. Or whatever. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, So maybe that'll happen. And uh, I've made a lot of decisions with the way that I've structured the economics of my deal that I don't make money myself. I make very little money personally, but I own the controlling share of the business. So I'm very, very protective over that scenario and the decisions that I make about how we run our business and what we do when the money, the cash flow is tight, that I would rather double down and work 18 hours a day than have to run around and go find more money so that I didn't work 18 hours a day. And that's my choice. And a lot of people are not willing to do that. I've seen it. I want you to know, like you have been a huge influence on me. Like I came to you because... That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't think about it that way. I've spent, you know, several years now researching this book, researching this podcast, interviewing lots of people. And there's something just, there's a clarity about your story that I've used as a lesson. So to do this podcast, I created a company, Arrow Productions, and I had you in my head, which is, there is the like, keep your eye on the big prize, which is not money. The big prize is not I'm a billionaire. The big prize is like, what's that thing we're doing? What's that core thing we're doing? And also keep your eye on all the small ball, all the little stuff, but constantly connecting them. When you bought your ice cream machine for $9,000 and then the next one for what was it? We paid $25,500. $25,500. It wasn't, oh boy, well, we could get this cheaper one for $22,000. It was, this is what we need to do and this is the machine that'll allow us to do it. So it's a constant link between the big vision, the core mission, the passion, and those pragmatic decisions. And then the sense I get is it's not you want control just because you're a control freak. Like you had control of four other businesses that you gave up. It's that right now this vision is inside of you. And if you give up control, that vision can't succeed. Mm -hmm. What I imagine is possibly a possible path for you, maybe a possible path for me, is eventually that vision is so mature and all those small choices are so mature that you are able to scale. You are able to bring on partners knowing the core of the thing is solid. I don't think about I could go and get a bunch of money or I could live on nuts and twigs and have nothing. I'm still just thinking that everything that I'm doing is about the mission. So sometimes we do take money. I go and say, I'm going to take money and I have 
we raised money and I spent a long time with lawyers that cost a thousand dollars an hour that I'm like, that's totally insane to me. I, I don't make minimum wage right now in the new minimum wage standard as an owner of a business. And that's a totally different scenario that we went down that road with those guys to do that work and then make that happen. And that was going to serve my goal to create that place in that location. You've been there. It's a monumental thing every day that I walk up to a gigantic hundred foot of frontage corner in Soho, Greenwich Village of New York City, and all we do is serve ice cream. Right. People can't believe it. And but I did that. But you took that money with, yes, and you did that. I mean, I took the money on so that I could do that. But you didn't lose ownership. You didn't lose control. No, you didn't lose was, majority ownership. But that. also bear in mind that I said no so many times until the right people and the people who uh, invested money add incredible value I call these guys, they are masters of what they do in their specific fields of work. And they are excited about what Morgan Stearns is doing. And they materially help guide me to make hard decisions about what to do with the business. The other thing that is very important to me, and I, this is not a joke, anyone who is going to be materially involved in your business should be someone that you would want to share a meal with. <laughs> critical sense. Yeah. critical yeah. if you don't want to have dinner with someone you shouldn't be doing business with them so picking your business partners wisely knowing when to take investment and the risks that come with it and what form to take that investment these are decisions that require a lot of thought and again it requires having a clear concept of what you want to achieve what is the passion you have that is creating value out there and what of that do you have to give up to take on investment. Nick has so much patience. He's working hard. He's burning the candle at both ends, but he is not rushing these decisions on partnering, on investment, certainly not on when he's done making an ice cream flavor. Now, the level to which Nick is dedicated to this vision, this passion, it's probably the extreme. I think he works pretty much as hard and as long as a human being can. It does not have to look like that for the rest of us. The compromise on time is really tricky. Yeah, it's yeah. really tricky. I'm lucky that now I've created this scenario where I can have all this time to just dedicate to this thing that I like to do. I can just like burn it out all the time. Yeah. I just exercise, sleep six hours if I can, and then do this thing all the time. It's kind of fun for me. But Truly. at some point, there might be Maybe. family and... Yeah, yeah. But yeah. now is this now thing is this, that I'm doing. Yeah. And we take this tremendous leap. And if we get it right, you know, the upside is huge. It's a huge upside if we get it right. I have a memory of not too far from your shop. I grew up in the neighborhood that your shop mm -hmm. is in on Hudson Street. There was just a family-owned ice cream place. It was just this married couple that love making ice cream. And it was lovely. And I honestly don't know if it was great ice cream or terrible ice cream, but certainly for me... It, it was great then. It was great then. It, your experience of it was great. Was and that's great. what's important. Yes. Yeah. I think I think of them every time I come to your shop. But they couldn't have that upside. It didn't exist. There wasn't the co-packing industry. There wasn't the co-manufacturing. There wasn't a supply chain. Like right. the big players, Procter & Gamble, Unilever... More than making ice cream, what they locked down was distribution of ice cream. Yep. and most important aspect. Yeah. And so you are very fortunate that you 
We're doing this at this time. At this time I when agree. there's so many resources that yep. you, you, when you're ready, if you're ever ready, you flip a switch. And it's there. And it's there. Just to be clear, of course, that all is sort of in the background in there. But when I say tremendous upside, I mean that the upside is that we get this chance to do this thing. And if we do it right, even just from that one store, the upside will be huge just from the one store. Yeah. And that's the Frankie DiCarlo part of the story right. for me, which is that if I just say no, I no interest in anything bigger than this thing, that one thing would allow me to live a comfortable life and allow me to do this thing that I really love to do. And in our world, in cooking food, that's a really That's a huge win. It is. It's a tough trick to pull off. Like you said, there could be all this other stuff. Who knows? But, you know, today I have to get it right. I'm in the process of getting it right. The Passion Economy is a three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson, and produced by Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy. 